Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. In this episode, Blake Evett discusses the importance of partnering with your community and creating multi-generational spaces for training, as well as how he does that in his hometown of Boston. He unpacks the influence that traveling had on his training, coaching, and business, as well as his own personal growth. Blake shares his thoughts on a number of subjects, including becoming vegetarian, the ADAPT coaching qualifications, and the United States Parkour Association. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. And I'm Blake Evett. Blake Evett is a coach, community leader, and director of Parkour Generations Americas and Parkour Generations Boston. Traveling has been an important part of his personal parkour journey since the beginning and has exposed him to ideas, cultures, and communities across the globe. Blake focuses his energies on exploring the ways parkour can be used as an agent for positive social change at both the local and national level. Welcome, Blake. Welcome to Boston, Craig. Blake, I thought today that we would start by talking about the new park that was created in Somerville. And I know it's a, a like, I want to say it's a pocket park, but it's a smaller installation that's part of a larger park, which I think is a really great idea for making it intergenerational and stuff. So can you tell me a little bit about what I'm interested in is how the park, how the people interact with the park. So when you go there to train and you find other people from the community in the space, how do people interact with you when you arrive or when you're already there? Yeah, I mean, the park has been a labor of of love in a lot of ways since we started here in Somerville back in 2012. Um, and the interesting thing is the place that we've first started teaching our outdoor Sunday class, which was the very first class that I started, back then was at this park. And since then the park itself has been through seven years of kind of proposals and designs and construction and then reconstruction. Um, and throughout that parkour has been kind of on the drawing board and, and it wasn't until this summer that it actually came to life. And that's been a really cool experience to see people, just the general community using it. Um, we just finished up our fall season using the park. Um, and the nice thing is it's now permeable and people can use it for all sorts of different events, whether it's parkour or for skateboarding or for street basket events and all sorts of stuff. And it's part of this massive uh, multi-million dollar renovation of the area, a whole larger which thing, is right? part of the um, larger groundswell of change is happening in the community within Somerville and within Boston as well. Um, and being a native of Somerville is is interesting to come back here to, to launch a company, to kind of grow a community in a place that I grew up, but is very different from where I grew up. Um, and teaching at the park is great because you see we'll arrive at the park and there'll be a, a two-year-old and an 80-year-old playing on the park um, <laughs> or watching the skateboarders or playing basketball right next to it or just enjoying the sunshine on the terrace. Mm -hmm. And and that's our goal with the park was to make a multi-generational movement space, not just a place where parkour can happen, but also a place where people can explore and be comfortable and and have fun with movement and fitness all in the same place. Mm -hmm. One of the th things that strikes me is now that the world is beginning to build more of these, I don't mean like dedicated places, but spaces where there are parkour accessible, like, you know, we see opportunities. We're all so used to repurposing spaces that we've we've all gotten 
an armor layer that deals with people who walk up and want to backflip and, and like how to interact and when to leave and when to, but when we now have these spaces where the general society sees parkour as acceptable, sure, they don't know what it is, they don't recognize it, but they now see activity in play, adults, young people happening in that space. My personal first reaction is just like one of relief, like, yeah, I can just go play there and train and I just want to like ignore everybody else. And I'm just wondering, now you have regular classes there on a schedule. Do you find it easier or harder or like, do you engage more with the community because you know that they're not going to push back? They're never going to chase you off of it? Or do you engage less of them because it's a freedom from having to deal with, you don't have to do the outreach, we're just contrained today. I'm just wondering how that plays out. I think I think it really depends on your mentality. And the mentality we've had since the beginning is, is of being very open and having a good line of communication with the community. That's how we got the park in the first place is, is it was, it's one of the only municipally built um, pub open to the public parkour parks in the country. I believe it's the third one. So we didn't pay for it. We helped with the design um, and came in to do a bunch of consulting for the actual construction, but the city paid for it. The city insures it and it is a city property. So it is open to the public. Um, so it it requires a degree of of stewardship of that kind of reputation of parkour. And, and so we are very much invested in how people use it, but also making sure that the image of parkour is remains a good one. Um, and so we do a lot of work with the city, whether it's teaching kids classes, teaching teen classes, adult classes. We now have a 50 plus class that we run in the city um, that is designed to get older folks, uh, older practitioners out and moving and exploring their environments and, and comfortable with places like this park that is steel and concrete and may look a little bit intimidating, but at the end of the day was designed with them in mind. So for us, it's very much caretaking that relationship and the image of parkour. I want to ask you more about the, you said it was an over 50 class and now, today, in 2019, it's pretty common for at least to see people who are in their 40s and 50s, they're onesie, twosie, but you see these people in the adult classes. And I'm just wondering if you could walk me through, I don't want to say walk me through the philosophy, but walk me through some of your mindset that led you to splitting that off as a separate class. Sure. So for us, um, we don't, we haven't actually split it off. We've, uh, for us, it's been a very concerted effort to add options and add accessibility. Mm -hmm. We have had people since the very beginning, we've had 60, 70 year olds in the classes training alongside people a quarter of their age. Um, and that's been really important because we wanna make sure that our adult classes are scalable and progressive and everybody's being challenged, but also that anybody can kind of come in and, and try it and have an opportunity to do parkour. But what we realized is that a lot of folks were intimidated by the image of parkour that's out there. And that's another project that we are constantly working on is to change that image. But in the short term, offering a class that was specifically designed to reach out to folks that didn't want to have the impact, the high impact, um, mm -hmm. that wanted to be able to kind of get off the couch and and for the first time and, and have something that they felt was accessible to them. Uh, was really important. And so we heard that demand. And after seeing a lot of the work that Parkour Dance has done over the years and Nancy Lorenz and PK Silver, uh, we were inspired by some of their stuff. And ADAPT has recently added a continuing professional development um, course for uh, teaching older practitioners. And so f all those things kind of came together with a perfect storm of of inspiration and knowledge and 
um, our own coaching expertise. And so we, a couple of key students were like these some key students who that asking. we've been training for years. Yeah, I mean, we've we've had uh, some of our most regular adult students are over sixty and just are in the regular classes. And ironically, they are not in the fifty plus classes. <laughs> and they're just going to our normal classes, but they've kind of set the bar and and said, hey, this is possible which I think is really empowering to other folks to say, hey, I want to be able to do this too. And and for us, that's that's what this is all about, is being able to get people to to feel passionate um, about something that's, that's really native and natural for all of us is just to move and to be able to, to feel comfortable in our public spaces, our open spaces, and to be able to explore what, are, what we're capable of, but also kind of what our limits are and to be able to share that with others. Because um, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to build a community um, and that community can't just be one type of person. Yeah, one demographic. You, you want, um, somebody once said to me, it was, it's, you're creating a tribe, your, your community. Exactly. Bigger than the parkour community, but your community of people and you're building a tribe and you, and it's everybody who contributes. Some people do the hunting, some people do the planting, some people take it, care of the children. And that's dictated a lot of the stuff that we've done, especially in the last two years in terms of changes to our classes. For example, our Sunday classes used to be, uh, we had the adult class first and then we had the kids class after, but it meant that a lot of adults weren't able to have childcare right. for their yeah, kids right, right. and therefore be able to train. So we combined them to be at the same time. Um, so we run the two classes separately but they are run at the same time. And we have a lot of parents that will bring their kid to the kid's class and then walk right over to the, the adult, adult class, class and check themselves in and, and take the class. And it means that they can both have a great start to their Sunday morning, but it also means that they have that shared experience and that's that a, shared culture, say, which is really powerful. And when they really walk away, right, that they're like, well, then I learned this and you learned this. And mom's talking. And then I also think it's really powerful when I see people like parents and children, there's a new thing thing there that the parent deeply understands something that the child is deeply passionate about. So yes, you're they're passionate about the children's artwork and the things they're doing in school, but but they know that, yeah, that's something I did long ago. It's a completely experience I had many years ago. But when they both come out of those parkour classes, it must be a neat scene to see them all leaving and all talking passionately about something they yep. both just experienced. And honestly, I wish we could have all of our parents, any kid that takes a class with us, that we could just require that their parents take a class <laughs> with us too, because it would make our job so much easier. Um, I think a lot of times when we have kids in classes and they've been training with us for a while, if parents aren't kind of part of that process and actively witnessing and participating in it, they don't understand kind of what their kid is actually capable of. And what we see a lot of is limitations imposed by parents on kids mm -hmm. based on what they expect or yeah, what is normal. And that's normal, the air quote version is right. is not really what we're, we're all about. So um, having parents that understand it, have been through it, have actually done QM and realize the difficulty right. of, of what is included in balancing on a rail or jumping to a rail, that's really powerful. And so the more we can teach the the whole family, um, the better. So we've gone up in age. So we have our 50 plus class. We've gone down in age. We now have a micro parkour class for ages four to five. Um, and that was an, it started because we had a lot of young, younger siblings that wanted to join and couldn't do the things oh, that their right. older siblings were doing. And, and so we created an option for them. So... I'm not sure where we're going to go from here because I think we can only go down and up <laughs> yeah, in terms of yeah. parkour. <laughs> but um, we'll we'll see what happens. Blake, I mentioned in the introduction that you've had the chance to travel a lot before you 
came back to Somerville and started the business that you started. So can you walk me through a little bit of what it is about Parkour Generations Boston and, and actually a little bit about how that became or, or like filled the space to become Parkour Generations Americas? Can you talk a little bit about that and why you, your experiences sort of shaped that? Yeah, so I had a lot of opportunities at the beginning that were just in a lot of ways the the perfect alignment of opportunity and jumping at initiative. Um, so I was introduced to parkour when I was living abroad. Um, I was living in France at the time as a gap year between high school and college. Mm -hmm. And I saw the Yamakaze movie in France on TV. And then I saw Bonne Lutres. And then I just kind of, I knew that there's, it was this thing. And so when I got to college back in the US, I heard about this parkour thing. There's a, a workshop in Charlotte. I was at Davidson College. And so I went to it, checked it out. And I was like, this is cool. And it's French and I'm trying to be a French major. So I'll write a paper on it. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a paper on it and then wrote another paper on it. And then the school had some opportunity to travel over the summer. So my junior year, I got school funding, which was incredible. I was absolutely astounded that I actually got it. But they gave me funding to go to Paris and, and research parkour for a month. And so I hopped on a plane and kind of sent an email that never was responded to, to the <laughs> French guys. You emailed them and, and, respond. and then I showed up at Bercy and I met Jao and Laurent and uh, kind of snowballed from there. So I spent a month just tagging after them and training with Laurent and did the 101 with him over mm -hmm. in Lise. And was dunked headfirst into the Kool-Aid mm -hmm. and and really liked it. <laughs> and so um, I came back and my coach, uh, I was running division one track and field at the time. And my coach found out and promptly banned me from doing parkour as a D1 athlete. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I'll do the steeplechase instead. So I ran two, I did the steeplechase for two years. And then uh, as soon as I graduated, I transitioned and, and got a fellowship called the Watson Fellowship, which is an incredible opportunity to basically travel around the world for a year studying a passion, um, go get lost and come back and tell us what you found and then you're good. <laughs> and so I did that. And <laughs> what do I sign? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's pretty amazing. And, and I knew I wanted to apply for it from the moment I started at Davidson, but parkour just kind of fit everything perfectly and was niche enough to to be weird enough to to fit what this fellowship was looking for and and that was really my my springboard the enabler yeah so i i spent a year going to 11 different countries and and that kind of snowballed from there so i met pk jen in london i spent time with the guys in france i met street movement um i was in, in denmark right and that, and those were the probably the three groups that really had the most impact on me at a both a, a personal level in terms of connection with the people that I spent time with, but also at a professional level and seeing that these were all basically companies that had been set up around this idea of parkour and and yeah, all of them were exposed to their really, professionalism, right? Yeah, they were really kind of leading the stand or setting the bar for a lot of things. Street movement with their parks, PK Gen with their classes, and I mean, obviously the French guys with with ADD and parkour and, and, right, and the whole passion and philosophy they, that they bring to the table. And so instead of the kind of the normal plan, which was to go back and go to grad school and get a master's degree and kind of go into normal life with like two kids, a dog and a picket fence. Um, 
<laughs> I decided to keep traveling and went back and lived in London for a bit, lived in Copenhagen for a bit, went to Gallo um, outside of Copenhagen, um, spent some time, a bunch of time going back and forth to Paris with the guys there, just kind of figuring myself out, figuring out kind of what I wanted to do with parkour. I knew I always wanted to to do something kind of useful with it mm-hmm. and not just kind of jump on stuff and and stay in my bubble, but to see if there is a way to use it to help others or to empower others that didn't have the same access to opportunities that I had. So at what point, I mean, that that does like, you know, go do, everybody should go duplicate that journey. <laughs> I mean, not the exact same steps, but the, yeah. the idea strikes me that that all started with you writing a paper. So some it professor started, somewhere said, I need a paper, six pages, single space, done, you know, by Tuesday. And then you went, that, oh, yeah. parkour. And then that leads to, so sometimes people look at the spectacular journeys like that one. They look at these spectacular journeys and they go, wow, you're like so lucky or that's amazing. But it all starts with like one little opportunity that isn't even the right kind. It's just go write a paper. And then something about parkour, well, for fun, I could write about parkour. And then that leads to another paper. And then the, then you start to see, um, you know, the old joke when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but that can work the other way too. Yep. If if, you, if you're if you not destroying you things. But do parkour, everything looks, looks like, like it's a playground. Yeah, yeah, it looks like a playground. <laughs> That's a better metaphor than the hammer one. So everything looks like a playground to you and you begin to reshape all of your opportunities to be stepping stones on your journey. I mean, I don't, maybe you were thinking that far ahead, maybe the very beginning you weren't and in the middle, you know, it get to Watson and you start thinking that way. Um, but it, that's, a, I think, a, an excellent way for one to challenge instead of like, here's the path that's laid out, but to actually consciously choose, okay, here's an opportunity and here's what I'm passionate about. How do I make this opportunity work? And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people ask me like, like, at what point did you realize that you wanted to start a company? And, and for me, it was like, I, I didn't have a vision of that at the beginning. And it wasn't until I came back on for, I think Christmas, one of the breaks between traveling. And I had an opportunity to, to meet with some city officials here in Somerville. And I grew up as as kind of in this place and feel very connected. And they said, Blake, we'd love to have you bring parkour back to Somerville. And for me, it was like, oh, this that'd be really cool. Like, how, how would I even do that? Like, what would that look like? Because there weren't very many, if any, models of that at the time, especially here in the U.S., of of kind of that close collaboration between municipality and parkour. Commercial, um, right. And then the passion of the people. And <clears throat> so that was kind of in my head at the kind of, at the end of my travels. Like the tail point, end of Watson. Now you're thinking two things. I'm loving my journey, but you know, I could apply all this. Yeah. And for me, it was like, at that point is like Watson 2.0 or 3.0 or right. it all kind of blends together. And I was, I was looking to come back home at some point in the near future and decided to kind of, send a, a cold email out to a few folks from back home and see if people would be interested in having me coach for them. And kind of one thing led to another and we got an opportunity to do something through the city. And there's an opportunity to teach in a school nearby, a private school. And that snowballed to another school. And before I knew it, I, I came back and I had a bunch of classes lined up Um just just enough to kind of let me survive and and kind of see if and explore to see if this was a thing and things just haven't really stopped from there. Well, so and that was question, the birth of PKJ. That was the birth of PKJ. Because what I was going to ask is, I mentioned that you're the director, one of the directors of Parker Generations Americas, and I also mentioned Parker Generations Boston. And then some people might think, wait, are those two different things? And <laughs> and I know that. It, those people who are really hooked into 
I don't want to say the politics of how it all works, but people who are really familiar with all the players and all the parts and pieces, they tend to lose sight of how complicated the landscape is within parkour and autodepassement and free running and all these pieces. And how much has changed. Yeah, and yeah. how much has changed. And and like everybody's journey is different. So you might have missed a year of, of activity. And I'm, I'm just thinking a lot of people either know all about it or they just see parkour generations and they just, they don't understand that there's differences between the Americas uh, and what goes on in Europe and England. Uh, beyond the obvious, like one's here and one's there. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me some more about, all right, so now you have these opportunities, these class opportunities and like having done business things, it's like, oh, they need an insurance certificate. Oh, then do work in a school, you have to actually have a background check. So at what point do you decide, all right, I'm gonna actually bootstrap this into an actual, le- I don't wanna say like legitimate thing, but legal business. And and how do you maintain, I was gonna say your philosophical principles, how do you put those into a business? Because I, I personally think one of the things that makes America great is the ability for us to create things from scratch, but yeah. sometimes the baby goes out with the bathwater. Well, that was one of the things that I think traveling really impressed upon me was the, was the fact that a lot of the countries that I was visiting, starting a business is, is not nearly as easy as it is here in the US. Um, and I think that's looking back and and also kind of having spent a bunch of time in France and and seeing the struggles that the French guys have have had um a lot of that comes from just the difficulty of starting a business in France is really the, there's so many barriers to doing that um as opposed to here in the US you can start a business in like 2 hours on legal zoom and and have everything and that you need to to get get rolling, and it's it's made so easy. It's also very easy to fail, um, and that's intentional in a lot of ways. But it also means that you can get started very easily. So, I think for me, starting out, my coming back to Boston and kind of the opportunity to uh, work with PK Jen, um, I developed a really close relationship with the guys in London, and so when I came back here, I co-founded along with Joe Torsha and James Ballantyne, we started PK Gen Americas. And at the beginning, it was kind of, I was doing my thing in Boston, James was doing his thing in California, Joe was doing his thing in Ohio, and kind of all moving together in roughly the same direction. And that was the start of it. And there was no PK Gen Boston at that point, it was just one company um, that had different locations. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've we've tweaked the model of a number of times now to try to make it more sustainable, to make sure that we're retaining that emphasis on the grassroots, to make sure that local communities are are prioritized, and that they can have the benefits of having a dedicated coaching core and quality instruction and the kind of administrative and financial setup to make sure that they can succeed. Um, and so now I work very closely with both Adam McClellan and Andy Keller in Pennsylvania to make sure that we are building that framework to be able to to strengthen our branches and to make sure that the the company as a whole, PK Gen Americas, is strong. But part of that is having strong local branches. Um, so Parkour Generations Boston, Parkour Generations Lancaster, P- uh, Parkour Generations Lehigh Valley are all integral parts of that, but are also functioning at the grassroots level and connecting with their communities. Because what I do here in Boston doesn't really have a whole lot of impact on what goes down in Lancaster. But at the same time, we have a shared philosophy, we have a shared shared culture, and we have a lot of the same values that that's kind of part of, of that PK Gen family. 
Um, and that's the same across a lot of the different branches around the world, having just been to Brazil to, to teach at, uh, uh, it's now called Rendezvous Americana, uh, America Latina or Latin American Rendezvous. Um, and having been to the London one, kind of going to those events, it's very clear that those are all the, the same culture and the same ethos. Um, and we, we share the same spirit in a lot of ways, which is really amazing. Like I've been asking you questions and I often like to let people like, uh, what else do you want to share? Is there anything else you want to bring up in particular? Um, I think a lot of people have, have asked about our, our team here in Boston and especially for American Rendezvous, it seems like we, we put a lot of things on display in terms of building our kind of temporary builds um, and, and just the sheer manpower of everybody coming together to make those things happen. But a lot of, of what we do here in Boston is, is very much based around the concept of the team or, or the family um, and making sure that they we are bringing in people that, that fit with our culture, that fit with our uh, style of thinking. Values. And value system, yeah. But also kind of that have this shared passion and, and really want to, to share that passion as well with others. Because um, I think at the end of the day, Coaching parkour is is a skill, um, and that's one of the big things that kind of teaching adapt courses around the country is is that we emphasize is is that coaching is a skill, just like jumping or any of the parkour techniques, and it has to be honed and it has to be developed and it has to be nourished, and that the ability to jump or to do parkour doesn't necessarily kind of translate to being a great coach, and I think that's something that for us here we've we've created a community that, that values coaching um, and that values kind of leading by example and that a lot of those things are things that we have seen in other cultures and maybe I think for me I, I try to think of it as as being a little bit of a, a pirate or a Viking and, mm. and during my travels I go around and I see all these cool ideas and, and then I bring them back to here and and try to to implement them here um, for me, that's been one of the most powerful pieces of, of parkour is the, the fact that it allows me to travel as much as I do. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, my next thought is, all right, so if you're, I don't want to say so focused on team, um, like aside from like the obvious question, like when do you sleep? The next question would be like, when, where, and how do you train? Like do people, I know you pretty well, but I'm wondering like, do people come up to you and ask you random questions? Like, oh, what's the training regimen for being able to run the marathon? And you know, like, like what kind of questions do you get? Like as a person coming at you just as an athlete? Yeah, I, I think for me, one of the biggest things, biggest questions that I get asked is about balance. Um, a lot of the adults that we have in our classes. Balancing life, not, balancing not equilibrium, life. right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously balance is, is important, um, but balance in all, all aspects of life in terms of uh, being able to do the work-life ba balance, the family life balance. Um, I know I've gone through a fairly dramatic series of changes of my own over the last, especially two years in terms of going vegetarian for the last three years now. And I've switched to being a very kind of very much a night owl to getting up much earlier and doing a lot of my workouts in the morning to be able to kind of go into the day on a high and and go into the day having having already accomplished something. Um, and so for me, that's important. Um, I know, especially in in Boston in the winter, a lot of people, uh, myself included, will kind of struggle to to find that that motivation to uh -huh. go out in Ball the bitter too. cold. Yeah, and 
Um, I mean, our, our whole team rides bikes everywhere and we're very proud of the fact that we ride bikes everywhere all year round. We're not just these fair weather bikers, but I think that's, that's part of the, the ethos that we're trying to build here of, of, yeah, it, it kind of sucks, it's but it makes right. us stronger. Um, and honestly, the fitness, the fitness improvements that we see in, in new coaches as they come to Boston and then get their bike and, and then have to bike everywhere is, is pretty dramatic. And it's cool to see that people are like, oh, this isn't actually that bad. And as long as you're properly kind of dressed and properly prepared, then it's doable. Um, and, yeah, and you're not the, commuting 20 miles. You're, you're commuting yeah, across I a, mean, a relatively well, small town, a few it's miles. A, it's a few miles, but at the end of the day, a lot of us are biking 10 miles a day mm -hmm. or 15 miles a day. Yeah, with your gear, with your stuff to go, yep. you know. And and I really enjoy that. For me, it's my meditation time a lot of times and, and going between classes allows me to prepare a little bit. Um, and I find that the opportunities when I do have to drive or I'm driving equipment in the zip van, it, it's, I hate it. Yeah. I can't stand it. <laughs> so do people ask you, uh, I'm wondering, well, now you have the cats out of the bag that you're, that you've been vegetarian for three years. Now you're going to get a bunch of questions, but do before, before that very moment, have people who known about that, have they asked you specifically about it or has it just sort of been, you like kind of slipped that in stealth and people other than the team didn't really know. And do you get questions about that? Yeah. I think a lot of people, obviously the first question you get is like, how do you get enough protein? Um, and, and that's just that such, hard, such a red herring yeah. um, in terms of uh, the American diet. Um, right. I don't have an issue with that. I think for me, the biggest thing has been consuming enough calories <laughs> uh, to make to make sure that uh, I'm I'm kind of meeting the same calorie needs that I had when I was uh, eating a more diverse diet. Yeah. So I think apart from that, like it seems very intimidating, but I've actually found it's been been great for me, especially as I go from kind of training to meetings, to coaching, to meetings, to training, to <laughs> all day long and, and bouncing between a lot of things. I don't, I don't often have a good chance to kind of really sit down and have like a midday meal. And I found that my energy levels are, are much more kind of stable and, and uniform. less likely to, to peak or to trough when I'm vegetarian. So I think the other big piece of that for me is the other big life change has been I've kind of gotten back into running through parkour. Um, so when I finished my D1 career for track and field, I, I hung up my spikes and I was like, I'm never running again. <laughs> and like, screw this. And it lasted about six months. <laughs> and then I went to, I was living in the UK and I had an opportunity to do like one of these survival of the fittest races. And it was like a Tough Mudder right, before right. Tough Mudder was a thing. And it was basically parkour plus cross country, which was my wheelhouse. And so it was really fun. And I, I kind of rekindled that, that love of, of running and of competing. And that's been one of the more interesting things for me is that parkour is for me has been non-competitive and dealing with my competitive urges and, and finding a way to get <laughs> that out the peanut gallery, right? has been, has been a very intense personal process and, and finding ways to get that out, whether it's hopping into the occasional road race or training for the Boston marathon, which I did last year, those were ways for me to get it out, but also finding ways to kind of compete with myself. I, I find that my own training is, is very much dictated by having a goal. And if I don't have a goal, whether it's the level one or the level two or the level three for adapt, like those were goals. Those are things I could train for. And when I don't have a goal, due date, right? I, I need something to, to push me. So, and uh, you were bringing up, you were starting to talk about the dietary changes. And I'm wondering if you were going to talk about 
is because my assumption is it doesn't negatively affect your training or you would have changed your diet again. So uh, I'm not in the red herring. I'm like, but if you're a vegetarian, how do you build muscle? Like, come on, people read. Like <laughs> that's yeah. 20 year ago knowledge. But my, my question is, are you finding that the, like, is it a struggle to consume enough calories or is it just like, well, I, I just got in the habit of doing X, Y, and Z. It's not hard. Or um, I'm just wondering how the diet plays into your, like, you, I know you said your energy levels are more uniform, but how does it play into like when you're training for the marathon? Is it like, okay, I have to be specific and make sure I get X done or it's just like, no, this diet works for that too? Or No, I, I think for me, it was, I was astonished by how easy it was to kind of integrate vegetarianism into my just general diet. And for me, it was, it was a health thing. It was a ethical thing. It was an environmental thing. And it was also an experimental thing. It happened because my girlfriend was vegan and I tried it and I was like, oh, this doesn't have a big effect on me. Like I feel great. So we'll try it for another month. And then it became another month and then it became half a year and then it became a whole year. And I was like, whoa, I haven't really noticed much of a difference. And from the ability to like just eat a meal and then go train has been so liberating <laughs> yes. um, and not feeling really heavy or lethargic after a meal. I never knew that was a thing. And I think for me, I would always have to kind of plan out my meals when I was running back in the day in college. Like I had to plan out my meals and my snacks to make sure they didn't interfere with my workouts. The physiological and Now it's so much easier to, to just transition between the two. And I'm sure there's there's a whole lot of science and and kind of digestive science behind that, but the the end result has been it's it's way easier for me to transition. Right. Uh, if you had if you had the opportunity to give somebody a like go start here, would there be a, a I don't want to like sell books. I don't get anything <laughs> from it, but like is there you know somebody who says oh, okay dude I'm willing to try this you know in the spring it's going to be my project. What, you know is there a place where you would say other than go find a girlfriend who's yeah, vegan and saying, loves to cook. That was your option, gateway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, delicious vegetarian food. Yeah. Um, but other than that, which might be a little hard, um, is there something that you would say, go try this or go find somebody or like find a mentor? Like what would you, you know, first tip? Yeah, I mean, I think for me is just dipping dipping my toe in and, and trying it for a weekend um, and seeing what works for one's body. My brother did it at the same time as I did. So I think I had a little bit more emotional support and kind of like we could talk about things about like, problems that we were having or adjustments that we were feeling. That's and really and that, was, really that was that was helpful. So having somebody that you can do it with and you can say, hey, my energy is feeling really low today, like is yours. Um, so that you know it's not just you or it's just not a bad day or something like that. Blake, while I have you, you know, stapled to a chair with a microphone, you keep inviting me to the level two course, like please, you know, come take the course. And, and I keep going like, yeah, that's funny to leave. <laughs> but I think people I don't want to say give it a bad rap, but I think people put it up as like this. The adapt guys are nuts in a bad way. That adapt to is this impossible, you know, destroy people kind of thing. And I, I'd love to give you the chance to just unpack the thinking behind behind level two and and maybe how you guys approach it when you um, like, you know, what are you thinking when you're suggesting that I come take <laughs> yeah. the, the course, not the assessment, one, the course. One of these days we will get you to come, okay? <laughs> it's going to happen. But I think, yeah, a lot of people put the Adapt Level 2 course up on this pedestal where it's kind of this kind of crazy, inachievable f feat of kind of fitness and yeah, technical destruction. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe you're, sometimes you're like reborn as a phoenix and sometimes you just like are- Pile of died. ashes, yeah. right? <laughs> um, but in all honesty, the the ADAPT courses have evolved so much in the last six years, um, or especially in the last 10 years since they were first started. 
And a lot of that has been due to feedback from candidates and from coaches about things that worked well, things that didn't work well. Um, the level two course has gone through probably four or five iterations by now. And every time we hone it a little bit more, we take things out, we add things. Um, it's meant to be a very self-reflective course where you can really figure out what works well for you and what you're good at and what you're maybe you need some improvement in. I think the the assessments is is what turns a lot of people away in terms of like oh there's these there's assessments for like two or three or like it's like a whole week right and uh, <laughs> the course itself is five days and then you have uh, you can take the assessments anywhere from three months to like three years later and the assessments are two days uh, it includes a physical a technical and a coaching assessment and it's really a way to to see if you're performing at the level expected of an adapt level two coach, but it's meant to be scalable. So it sh should be accessible to, to a large variety of people because we want the expert coach that maybe can't do all of these things perfectly, but has the ability to coach them well to be able to pass because ADAPT is all about coaching. Um, it's not a performance. Um, it's not a performance assessment. It's about uh, coaching and coaching at a high level. So I think I encourage people to do the course um, that are ready for it as a way to see where they are in their coaching journey and to figure out where they're going to go next. Because for me, I'm a very goal-driven person and I have things that I see ahead of me that I, I want to overcome. And I realize in parkour, a lot of what we do is structuring our lives around obstacles and the idea of overcoming obstacles. And so that's super important for, for training, for kind of growth and progress, but it also gives us um, something to measure and and adapt to level one, level two, level three is, is a measurement of in some ways, but it's also a way of kind of coming together every few years or at, at different points along your journey to work with like-minded folks to spend five days, yeah, doing nine hours, eight yeah, to nine hours a day, just focusing right. on coaching, which is a luxury in so many ways, but also really impactful for, for coaches. And I see a huge change in, in our coaches that have just been through the course and haven't even taken or passed the assessment yet. Um, and the assessment, a lot of people don't pass it the first time, but then you leave it with a detailed plan of what you need to work on and what you need to improve so that you can try it again. And and that's what kind of life is is about in a lot of ways is you, you don't overcome this obstacle. So you figure out how you're going to build up to it and progress and then you find another way to do it. So... Obviously, it's not perfect, but I think there are a lot of ways in that kind of looking at it as this kind of thing that's just like inachievable fitness kind of mark or a mark of distinction is is not really giving it its kind of true value and, and showing it in its true light. It's it's a coaching certification, but it's it's more an opportunity for a lot of folks to, to just focus on coaching for a bit and, and improve themselves personally and as a coach. Blake, travel is a recurring theme, obviously, in, in your story and your journey. And, and without it, you wouldn't be who you are and you wouldn't have created what you've created. So um, how do you, how does one, not you specifically, but how does one get people, like I have family members who have never been outside the state that we are in. How do you like light that fire in another person? And, and what sort of change does that create in them when you manage to do that? 
yeah, I think travel is a, is a huge uh, potential for growth. Um, we've seen it in our coaches here that have traveled from across the country and, and very many, a lot of them have not traveled before. And so for them coming to Boston and these cold winter climbs is, is this <laughs> very exotic and exotic. Sh- a shocking experience. Shocking is the word. Um, but we've seen so much growth from them over the years. And I think international travel is, is even, has a similar potential for impact because you're getting outside of your culture. You're seeing how other people live. It puts your own culture in a totally new perspective, which is really valuable um, to be able to see things from a different a set of eyes and to see how the rest of the world views the U.S., both from a parkour context, but also from a political, a cultural, um, even a food context. <laughs> so maybe especially a food context. Um, but I think for a lot of a lot of young practitioners, especially the ability to kind of go out and sustain themselves or to kind of prove that they can be themselves or find themselves while traveling is is really powerful. And I encourage all of our younger coaches to take opportunities to travel and our not so young coaches to do so as well. Cause I think it's an important piece of of just being a human is to interact with other humans in other places other than your own little bubble. So I think there's so many amazing parkour events out there that it's a shame not to travel in a lot of ways because there's so much going on and, and there's so much potential for exchange of ideas and cultures and values. And there's so much shared experience that we have within the parkour community that um, travel is just a, an amazing way to do yeah, that. You can't come back without like this, ah, I got all yeah. these ideas and you just come back on fire with new stuff. And, um, and that's what we try to do with American Rendezvous is for folks that can't can't travel. American Rendezvous is an some of the opportunity to, to bring all of the travel to them in one place and right. one weekend in Boston. So, yeah. And that happens with events all over the place. And and I, I don't want to, the more you travel, the more it, it almost gets a little depressing because you're like, I am never going to make it to all of the events. There's just no yeah, way you can get physically to all impossible because they the also awesome schedule places. themselves at the same time. Well, so. there's only so many weekends, right? But, but yeah, there's so many places to go. And then, and then you start like, well, I really love this event that's close to me because it's like my home roots, but it coincides with the one I want to go to over here. So yeah, it's it becomes a, oh, what a terrible problem to have. Um, you mentioned before when we were first starting out that you did it as a gap year at one point. And that's an idea that I didn't even know was a thing when I grew up. And and I think a lot of Americans really don't think of it. Now we all know it exists, but that's one thing that really, I think, helps people. There's And it's just, it has to do with that combination of how old you are and like first really serious travel. And I think that's something that people would benefit tremendously from. I'm for, talking about Americans. So just for, like, for me, that was probably one of the best decisions yeah. in my life. Even if was, your gap year is just you go across the country, you're on the East Coast, go to the West Coast, you're in, you know, go up, down somewhere just for that one year. I mean, I, I actually recommend to a lot of our high school um, team members that they should take a gap year. And, and we're starting to see a lot of them, gap years are becoming more popular, especially as people realize the impact that they can have. But for myself, it was a year for me to grow up um, and figure out what I liked in life and well, what I wanted to do. you've been in school for 13 straight years in a structured environment. Exactly. You try one out on your own and then do you want to go back or do you want to go forward or sideways? I think for me, it was an opportunity to grow up a little bit and then go into college and, and not waste as much time. I think Americans, we have this kind of idea of college where we can kind of lay out, just kind of hang out and, and party. And like in a lot of other countries, 
colleges or university is set up to be this like much more distilled yeah three years and you kind of do it and you're done and like you go and you're like already in the workforce during that time and you have your own apartment whereas in america we've set up these idyllic kind of city on a hill that doesn't these bubbles that don't exist anywhere in society and and i think that that actually handicaps a lot of kids coming into them because they they get into the bubble and they're like oh i can do whatever i want and there's nobody here to tell me what to do and yeah the the focus on what you're actually there for is is often lost. So the gap year is really important. I, and I think for me, I, I was able to learn a language. I was able to learn to kind of fend for myself in a new culture. I kind of fell in love with the French culture. And that was really eye-opening for me and, and kind of led to a lot of things and decisions down the line. So I... I fully support that for for all kind of graduating high schoolers <laughs> uh, and I think that should be more of a thing and I'm I'm glad to see that it's it's becoming a thing when I did it like people were like you're doing what, what? you're yeah. not going to college like everybody goes to college, college why right. would you take a year where are you going like yeah. why are you going to this place across the across the big pond so We've mentioned American Rendezvous, the event, a few times here, and I'm just wondering, can you uh, tell a little bit more about the event so people who may not have heard of it can find out where it is and when it happens and, and what how the event is structured? Yeah, American Rendezvous is part of the international rendezvous series of events that happens in in all the PK Gen branches. Um, we like to think American Rendezvous is a little bit different in terms of the truly global sphere of, of, of influence. Um, it started as a way for us to kind of bring the different branches together to invite some coaches from uh, different organizations around the world together. And it's really grown into this international event um, and kind of festival of, of movement and community right. of movement. Um, so the event itself is, is hinged around community movement and exchange. We're bringing in coaches from around the world to share their experiences, their ideas, their techniques, um, their time with participants from around the world now. Um, and it's over 200 people that come from all over the country. We've had as far away from as like Brazil and Sweden and Jamaica. And it's really just uh, a big, fun, crazy weekend of, yeah. of workshops. Um, the, so the coaches all teach individual workshops to participants. We have specialist workshops. We host a lot of folks that come into town to make sure that it's uh, affordable. And uh, nobody is paid. All of the revenues from the event and from our sponsors go back into the event. We have a lot of scholarship spots that we provide to local at-risk youth. We do a lot to make sure that the coaches are being, since they're not being paid, we try to kind of appreciate them for their time and a lot of coaches see it as an opportunity to come and check out the U.S. and meet with their friends and make new friends yeah, from the coaching the team. Front and, the back. <laughs> and it's now become like more of a of a like a whole package of of well, come to the U.S. Come <laughs> to the U.S. and New York City explore. And go, and then they they go on to California. Or whatever. Yeah, and, and so it's it's been a great way for for coaches to get an introduction to the U.S. and for Americans to get new ideas. When I first moved back to the U.S. One of the big things that I saw was there wasn't a whole lot of exchange of actual coaching and experience other than via social media and, and YouTube at the time. And there there had been a few times where the Yamak had come over or PK Jan had come over for events, but there wasn't a, a very active kind of uh, back and forth between Americans and the continent. Um, 
as they like to call themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and that was something that I thought was really lacking, having spent a bunch of time and basically all of my training time at that point had been abroad and never in the US. And, and for me, I'd kind of grown up in the parkour sense elsewhere fr from the US. And then coming back, there was a bit of culture shock training here in the US and, and things were different. And that I saw a lot of things that were really cool and that I would love to share with my friends in other parts of the world. And I thought uh, there were a lot of things that those friends could also bring to my friends here in the US and to the communities here. And one of the really cool things is I think in a lot of ways, the American communities have woken up to the potential of the rest of the world to bring ideas in. And, and that's becoming a much more commonplace thing. And the other thing I, I think that's really important is the idea of workshops as a way to share knowledge. Um, parkour in a lot of ways has developed this kind of idea of, I don't need anybody to teach me. Like I can learn it I myself from it watching videos or, or from kind of going out and just doing it. Um, but there's a lot of value to having people that are experts to show you what to do. So you avoid the mistakes that they made when they were learning. And that's how the discipline as a whole progresses. That's how we as individuals progress more safely and, and faster um, is by basically standing on the shoulders of giants. You can see a lot farther than if you're just developing your everything yourself. And American Rendezvous is set up to bring a lot of great ideas to people and, and share those. And, and also at the same time to strengthen the wider parkour community by having this kind of neutral space where people from maybe conflicting or, or competitive elements of yeah, you'd of expect competing organizations to be on opposite sides of the topic, right? Exactly. And they can come together and, and just be in a place and, and have fun. Um, cause there's not money at stake. Right. And, and this is my personal opinion. So I'm gonna go out on a limb and see whether you agree <laughs> or disagree. Um, I think it's actually really amazing that America has, uh, we probably have more national events than the rest of the world combined. I mean, I haven't actually counted, but my opinion is there are things on the all edges, centers up, down, every which way you could spend your entire you know year just going to events within the United States. And there are so many different kinds of events. So there's, there's the type of events where you're talking about that have this huge international melange. And then you can go to like Winter Jam in Texas and it's a completely different vibe because it's basically a jam. It's a very organized jam, but they're focused on their communities. It's open. Anybody can attend. But when you go there, it's like you're going to Texas and you're training with the Texas communities. And then you can go to like an actual competition event that's run the way you would run qualifiers and then run, you know, heats and everything. And I love that in America, that there isn't like a one right way to do it. So that each yep. of the events brings something different and it's the combination of all those events, I think, that makes America the best. But that's my two cents. Yeah, and I think we have so much potential here because we have such diversity and cultures within the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's geographically, we're all, as big as Europe in a lot of ways in terms of, so going from Boston to Texas is like going from like the UK to, to Portugal. So we just happen to speak the same language. So it's easier for us to communicate. It's also easier um, for us to fight too. Which yes, is <laughs> that's also true. But I think there's, there's a lot of advantages to that. And I think as we touched on earlier, a lot of the kind of the entrepreneurial advantages here in the US has meant that starting gyms, starting communities is so much easier which just means that there are so many more of them, um, right. which which has, there's been a boom in the US in the last three to four years, especially of gyms, of 
um, yeah, training businesses. spaces of communities of parkour, yeah. basically industry. And that's, that's really cool to see. And I think that will just continue to grow. Mm -hmm. Another topic that we should touch on is the United States Parkour Association. And I've done a, another interview with you for a series on that. So without going in too deep on that, just because there's other material you've already recorded, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, because we were talking about the different types of events and each event has its own like DNA and it's great. They don't need to change and all be the same. And I'm just wondering if that springboards us to a discussion of like, yes, now we need to bring this together on an umbrella so that we have a communication above it that's happening too. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting being part of the the transitional board the planning and founding board of usbk because i think it's it's gotten me in very close contact with uh, a number of other people that i haven't had a whole lot of contact with before necessarily and so working with amos and frosty and mark and caitlin has has been really powerful because we're all on the same kind of team and working towards something and despite the fact that a lot of our businesses would kind of, are kind Directly, of competing yeah, in, in the same sphere for whether it's certifications or events or products or classes. Um, and I think that's been really cool. And, and that potential, I think, across the larger spectrum of, of United States parkour organizations is super powerful yeah, and getting exciting. everybody in the same forum. And we've seen glimpses of it at things like American Rendezvous or Art of Retreat, where people have a, a neutral space to come together and, and focus on on yeah, parkour on, on parkour industry yeah. together, but I think this is a, a much wider forum where where it can be more inclusive, and and that's the goal is to be inclusive and transparent and and functional, yeah, and, um, and to make be, an impact, be way more accessible because it can be done almost entirely virtually. Exactly. And, the, and it's great to go to events where you're focusing on those types of overarching topics, but it's also challenging because now you have to get on a plane and America's big. And you have to be, you have to have time for you, you have to have logistics right. work out for you, you have to have a place to stay. And and all those are barriers to entry that we want to try to eliminate as much as possible with, with something like USPK. I don't know if you're sick of hearing it. I'm sure everybody listening is sick of hearing me say, I'm passionate about collecting stories. So is there a story that you'd like to share? I think having heard a few of these before, I, I was thinking about this ahead of time. And, oh, it's a shtick. <laughs> and, and probably my, obviously the origin stories are always kind of interesting. But for me, I think one of the most impactful moments of, of parkour was um, when I was on my Watson and I was working with a group in Chile um, in Villa Alamana, the parkour school. And it was a group of kids that were, had basically come together under the tutelage of a guy named Carlos Hidalgo, um, who was basically creating out of nothing this parkour community. And he had created this vibe and this positivity that was infectious. And so I had actually extended my original week there to be there for a month so I could spend more time there. And he was... He told me in my very not great Spanish, he was like, uh, Blake, we're going to go to this place. We're going to go to this park that we've we've built. I was like, you guys have a park? This is crazy. And this was back in 2011. So parks were up outside of Denmark. Parks weren't a thing. And so we were like on this public bus uh, going through the Chilean hills outside of this small town. I was like, where are these guys taking me? Like, this is kind of <laughs> sketchy because like, we're going through like a bunch of like abandoned houses and like going out into like what looks like the woods and like the bus stops and everybody gets off. And I'm with a crowd of like 14 kids from ages like six to 16 and Carlos. 
And they start walking into the kind of this brush. I'm like, where are they going? And so the kids, I noticed all had backpacks with stuff in them. Like some had some computer cables, like two had a hammer. They had some nails that they had scrounged together, some rope. And like, I walk into like into the bushes and like, I go through like some thorns and then it opens up and there's this clearing in the middle of the forest where they had been basically building a spot of their own for months and they'd cleared out all the brush. They'd kind of basically tied trees together to make vaulting things. They'd lashed branches to other branches to make things they could swing on. They'd basically made this little like parkour, like haven in the woods there. And we spent the afternoon improving the spot. So they they see little six-year-olds with a hammer and nails, like pounding nails into trees to make sure they could uh, keep this branch against this tree that was lashed with a computer cable. And it was probably one of the most amazing scenes that I've seen and witnessed in parkour. And and it was just so impactful. And the idea that these kids didn't have any place to play. They didn't have playgrounds that were very good. They didn't have great safe spaces to do parkour. And so they'd gone out into the woods and found an abandoned patch of land and, and made their own space. And so the kids would, they'd bike there. Like as we were there for the afternoon, the kids showed up on bikes, kids showed up by the bus. Some kids walked there and they brought snacks and it just became this like community kind of is kind of like Neverland in a lot of ways. And and Carlos was Peter Pan and mm. kind of leading this all along. And it was to me that was when it was like the point of my Watson when I was like, wow, this has real potential to positively change people's lives. And this is what I want to do with it. So I think for me that was that was probably one of the most inspiring bits of the Watson was was seeing that and and seeing it replicated. And of course, the final question is three words to describe your practice. Uh, I think probably obviously the one of the first ones would be travel. For me, that's just been such an integral part of my journey and what I enjoy about parkour and kind of where a lot of the relationships and impact have been. Um, and I think it's a really important part for that I try to share with other folks. The other, I'd also probably say community because... I'm not the type of person that just exists within my own bubble. And I, I draw inspiration from others. And that probably links to my, my travel word as well. And in terms of it being really important to me to have a community around me and, and to be able to affect the community in a positive way. And then the other piece would be challenge. And, and that's what really drew me in in the first place because that first workout with Laurent was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life after... <laughs> After four years of, of of kind of division one track and field, I still hadn't felt a workout that like left me that sore and that drained, but feeling so good afterward. And we'd just been like crawling and jumping and running and doing all sorts of things that felt just very natural and, and fun and was way more fun than a lot of the things that I'd started with for, for go run 10 miles, go do repeats of hills. And this was just something that just felt right. And I think that's what's kept me coming back ever since was the challenge of it, whether it's doing a jump or kind of improving myself or building something. And I think that that challenge links to to all of the things that I do in my life today. 
Thank you very much, Blake. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Craig. It's been great to be here. This was episode 32. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 32. While you're there, please consider supporting the project. Thanks for listening.